Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you as we round up our worship series called Love Handles, a great way that we've discovered over these last few weeks about some tools and resources that can help us in our marriage, some tools and resources that can help us deter divorce, right? And today we're going to talk about sex. And I don't know who's more nervous, me or you, <laughs> that the church is going to talk about sex right here in worship. But we're going to do it nonetheless. It's going to be a part of this, and, and we believe that uh, it is appropriate that we do it uh, today and that we do it as a part of this because sex is uh, this beautiful gift from God that helps us to know that we are cherished and loved, right? But a part of what we've recognized is that um, society and the culture sometimes gives us conflicting messages, right? And we see messages all the time, whether in movies or television shows and advertisements, billboards, wherever. And those signs of, of sex and human condition are, are not really what we cherish as Christians, right? And so sometimes we get conflicting images. Sometimes we get it more than we uh, realize and more than we really want. I know for myself personally, the older I've gotten, the more prudish I've become on this and the less I want to see any of that stuff, right? And so often when I witness it uh, in movies or television shows, I, I kind of, you know, get my senses heightened like, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't prepared for that, right? In fact, we get such confusion sometimes, we often give it to our kids as well. I remember uh, the story of a seven-year-old boy who came to his mother at one point and said, Mom, what is this thing called sex? I don't understand. Well, he got a good lesson in the birds and the bees and, and about uh, the facts of life, and Mom went on and on and on, and she could tell at one point that her son was getting a little anxious, and he finally just stopped her in the middle of everything she was trying to sh say to him, and, and he just said, golly, Mom, uh, how am I supposed to put all that information in the little M or F box on the information sheet? Sometimes we give more than we need to give, right? Sometimes we share what's not relevant. Sometimes we don't do what it is we need to do, right? How am I supposed to fit that in the little bitty M or F box, right? Here's what I want us to know about Christianity and uh, sexual intimacy. Sex, I believe, and Scripture correlates, sex is a good gift from God. And we need to start right there because when we realize that sex is a good gift from God, then it helps kind of um, allay fears. It helps kind of set straight what we need to do. It helps us to better understand how it is we need to live. Rather than say that sex is bad and wrong and not good, until you get married and then, it sends confusing messages. Rather, what we need to be saying is sex is a good gift from God and we need to use it appropriately and we need to do with it what God would desire for us to do with it, right? Sex is a good gift from God. It is not wrong. It is not bad. It is not nasty. It's a good gift when used appropriately. And when we use it appropriately, when it's done well as God intended, it's deeply fulfilling, and it's deeply meaningful, and it has great value to our lives. It is a very special and distinctive gift, so much so that it needs to be contained in a specific relationship in a specific way, right? Sometimes we have good gifts in our lives, good tools, good resources that we don't always use well. I remember when I was five years old, I was helping my oldest brother dog sit, and he gave me the key to the house. And a key to a house is a good thing, right? It's a very cherished thing. You have to use it well. It helps to secure the house. It helps to unlock the house. It serves a very valuable purpose, right? 
Well, we were house-sitting a dog, and we all know that dogs are great animals and dogs are humans' best friend, right? I mean, if you don't believe that, you can exit the doors right now. I mean, dogs are important. Dogs are valuable. They're great resources, right? Until and unless a five-year-old who doesn't know any better and certainly shouldn't have done it jabs the key into the side of the dog. That's not using the gift very well, right? I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I did it. And you know what the dog did when I jabbed him in the side with a perfectly good key? He bit me. That dog bit me. How dare he do that, right? I was scared to death. I literally had to get stitches. But it demonstrates that when we have good gifts, perfectly valuable, perfectly good, when we don't use them in their intended fashion, they can cause harm. They can cause damage. They can create chaos. And this is what can happen when we do not use the good gift of human sex well, the way God desires for us to do. So today we're going to spend some time trying to talk through that and better understand what it is Scripture teaches us about that. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of those letters to New Testament communities, he, he wrote several times on this topic. Several of Paul's letters refer to sex and the way the church ought to relate to it and the way you ought to use it as a follower of Jesus. And no, no less than that, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And what you may or may not remember about the church at Corinth is that, man, it was a hodgepodge of the then-known world. It was a major port city, so people are coming in from all parts of the then-known world. Some are taking up residence, some are not. Some come into Corinth uh, as a part of other faith traditions. They come in as a part of either cultic prostitution uh, religions or fertility religions, and they've got all kinds of images and ideas and understandings about sex and human sexuality. And Paul wants to help, uh, you know, corral that, right? He wants to help say, look, that may be the way you used to function or that may be what you used to believe, but this is what we believe as followers of Christ. And so in part, Paul writes about several things in the letter to the church at Corinth, not the least of which is sex and how it is to appropriately be used. And so I want to read to you a portion of that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, where Paul is uh, helping to identify the best way forward with regard to this gift. Now, you need to know a couple of other things with regard to Paul and his understanding of life. Paul was under the impression and belief that Jesus would return in his lifetime, literally. You know, we believe that Jesus will return. We call it the second coming. Uh, but in the first century church, there was a firm belief that it would happen in their lifetime, and therefore, his theology is, is, um, uh, comes at us from that perspective. And he actually believes that it's best to be single than to be married. He's actually going to say that in this text, and he's going to say it in several other of his letters, that this is the better way if indeed Jesus is going to return. So you just need to understand that he's going to advocate for both marriage and singleness, but he believes that singleness is the better way forward. Listen to what he has to say. Now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, this is a correspondence that's gone on with Paul prior to this letter. Uh, scholars actually believe there was a previous letter to 1 Corinthians, and he's trying to respond back to that. And, and here's what he says. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? This was a question the church was asking. Certainly, Paul says, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. 
Now, does that sentence sound like it could actually be written in 2023? It does, doesn't it? 2,000 years ago, he's still writing that. The marriage bed, he says, must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back to together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Paul's got a whole swath of, of wisdom for us, right? He identifies that single life and married life are equally valuable. He identifies that he really wishes people would just stay single. And again, when you read several of his other letters, he would say, this is the better way. But if you can't contain yourself, get married. Isn't that funny? He also says that in single life, celibacy is the way and sex is for the marriage, right? So Paul's got quite a bit of wisdom that just kind of lays it out there. And I know for some of us, we might struggle with this wisdom. We might struggle with trying to live into this wisdom. And others of us think, yes, that's clearly, absolutely the way it ought to be. This is the way God intended. And there's every other thought imaginable within the context. And Paul remembers writing to a community of faith who's struggling with what it means to live into this who maybe came from other faith traditions or no faith tradition at all, maybe different cultural values or mores and, or none at all. And so he's trying to say, look, when we're in the church, when we're following Jesus, this is the way we need to live our lives within the confines of marriage so that we recognize this good gift from God, right? So Paul is going to establish for us a powerful lesson that we need to entreat. In this 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, actually chapter 8 as well, he covers a whole swath of topics about how life in Christ will be different from you, different for you as regards everything from uh, sex to marriage to uh, food to what we wear. He, he, he labels all kinds of things as about how it's going to change the way we live. But ultimately what Paul is describing here, Paul is describing a scriptural understanding of sexual intimacy. That's what he's trying to give to us. And when we live by this and when we understand it well in our own lives, it will help us, it will help the kingdom of God, it will help our marriages, it will help our relationships. And so today I'm going to spend some time talking about better how I understand this and how I hope to offer us some insights about how sex is a good gift from God and how it ought to be utilized well in the context of a marriage. So first, I want to start by talking about what sex is not, and then talk a little bit more about what I believe it ought to be, okay? So the first thing I want to talk about is what sex is not. Sex is not a sport. 
Now, I know that sounds silly when I say it, but all I simply mean by that is sex is not a win. Sex is not about a conquest. Sex is not about how many partners I can have, how many notches I can notch up. Sex is not about a sport. We would actually refer to that as sexual immorality. We would say if we have a whole bunch of partners, particularly if we're married, particularly if we've committed to somebody, then, then that's outside of that relationship. And, and we're not going to look at this as if somehow I can win the most or win the best or be the best, right? Sex is it's not a sport. And while I know most of us would agree with that, I know also some of us in our youthful days tried to make it a sport and tried to create of it a sport. And and that is not the way God intends it. That is not God's desire or God's heart. God desires that it is in a lifelong, committed, monogamous relationship, that it is this specially designed, wonderfully gifted opportunity, and it is to be cherished distinctively, right? In another letter that Paul wrote to another community, Thessalonica, uh, he he said essentially this in chapter 4. He said, God wants us to live a pure life keeping ourselves from sexual promiscuity. And all he means by that is um, contain yourself. This isn't a sport. Let's do this well because it is such a wonderful gift that we want to contain for a special relationship. So the first thing sex is not is it's not a sport. The second thing sex is not is it's not selfish. And all I mean by that is um, when we believe that sex is all about my needs and my wants, and only me and my wants, then we've misrepresented the good gift that God intended. When we say, I'm only in this to help myself and make sure that I feel better and make sure that I'm done and make sure that I get my needs met, that's very selfish. And that's not the way God intended sex to be. God intended sex to be very mutual, very consensual, very agreeable, and for the other. And so part of our goal is to abandon this sense of freedom. By golly, I can do this my way, or I can get this done my way, or I can make it happen the way I want. Freedom is a fascinating thing, isn't it? I think more than most people in other cultures, we understand that, and we recognize that freedom is both a gift and a responsibility, right? Do we have the freedom to have sex however we want? Sure we do. But is it best? Probably not right? The freedom becomes both a gift and a responsibility. Paul would write about this in the churches in Galatia uh, when he talks about this, and it's in the confines of how he wants the churches, the followers of Jesus, to be free in Christ, but that those freedoms mean special responsibility. He says it this way, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but rather serve each other through love. Now, that's, that text is not about sex, but it is about freedom and how freedom can get corrupted, right? Then he does go on to say uh, for a few verses later, the actions that are produced by selfish motives are obvious since they include sexual morality, moral corruption, doing whatever feels good. Even in the beautiful context of a marriage, we can really be quite selfish with regard to our sexual nature, right? And what God invites us into is to not be selfish, but rather to be self-giving to the other and recognize how can I be in this with you and how can I help you and how can I uh, satisfy you, right? Sex is not selfish. 
Likewise, the third thing that I believe sex is not is sex is not self-destructive. Uh, now, you may think, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, how, how, how does that work? Well, first, it works by playing a sport. Um, we don't want to do that. That actually becomes self-destructive. The more partners I have, the more people I have sex with, the more destructive I become both of me and of the other because it's not, it, it's not the way it's intended. But self-destruction also means doing things I don't want to do, doing them in the ways that I'm not comfortable, doing things sexually that um, I don't necessarily agree to, right? All of that can be self-destructive. And in a mutually respectful relationship, we would never force someone nor really even ask them to do something with which they were uncomfortable. And so when we enter into this sexual relationship in the context of our marriage, it's fine for us to be creative, but it's not fine for us to do something that's not willful for both partners. And so when we do that, we can sort of self-destruct ourselves or destruct someone else. And likewise, that's not what God desires. God would never ask of us to do something that is destructive by nature, harmful by nature. And therefore, we wouldn't want to do that with regard to sex. Look what Paul likewise says to the church at Corinth in the previous chapter, chapter 6. He says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. I know we don't normally uh, regularly think of our body as a temple, but we're told that it is by Scripture. And we might implement that well with regard to what we eat or how we exercise, but we also need to do it with regard to how we do sex as well, because we need to treat our body and our spouse's body with respect, honor dignity, forthrightly, right? But when we don't, it can, if we allow it, become destructive. And God would not want that, nor would God be honored by that. This is what sex is not. Now, let's have a little more fun and talk about what sex is, right? Here's what I want to say about that in a more broad perspective. First, I would suggest that sex is creative. Sex is creative. I mean, part of what we know literally is that's, that's one of the reasons we have sex, right? To procreate. That is what Genesis tells us in 128, that God blessed the man and woman and said, go be fruitful and multiply. So clearly a part of this is that's what sex is about. But it's not the only reason for sex, right? I mean, the church taught for centuries that the only reason we have sex is to make kids, make children. And while that is a good purpose for sex, and certainly it's helpful to the procreation of, of society, it's not the only reason for sex. I hope you would agree with me that one of the reasons for sex is simply to have fun and enjoy one another's company. It's not just for procreation, but it is to be creative in the way in which we do it. And so while I'm clearly not going to get prescriptive today, thank you very much. Just consider times and places and locations and ways and styles and whatever is mutually agreeable. Be creative. God would be horrified if we were bored with one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave us, 
Why not become creative in the way in which we do? And guess what? When we become creative in a mutually respectful way, guess what happens? We not only have fun, we not only feel fulfilled, but it's actually a wonderful thing which God intended it to be. So you have your pastor's permission to be creative. Okay? I don't want to know anything. Just be creative. But when all is said and done, this creativity is about mutual respect and mutual understanding. Paul, while not speaking about sex itself, would say this in Romans chapter 12, where he talks about how it is we need to um, love one another with mutual affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine how that creativity could blossom if it was always about how can I honor you and how can I mutually respect you as we do this in the context of our marriage life. That's the first thing I believe sex is. It's creative. The second thing I believe sex is, is it's unitive. And I know that's a funky word, but unitive, just, I just mean it, it unifies, right? A part of what we realize quite, quite literally and quite physically is sex brings us together, right? But it doesn't just bring us together physically. Sex also brings us together emotionally. I maintain even spiritually that it connects us to the God who put all things into motion and the God who gave us this good gift of sex and the God who made it possible for us to enjoy it and to procreate with it and to be creative with it, that that is a good gift that God wants. Now, I know good and well that most of us would never think, oh, God's in this and God's a part of all this. I get that. But I want to suggest to you that God's the one who made this unity possible and that God desires that in and through our sex lives that we could be unified with another human being with whom we have made a lifelong commitment and who we want to have mutual affection, right? What a powerful gift that can be. And so I want to claim that powerful gift in our sex lives, that it helps us to become one and it helps us to bond and to, 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 to do things that we might not otherwise be able to do when we live well into that gift. Now, the third thing that I think sex is, and, and the word I know is a little unique, uh, but I would say that sex is euphoric, euphoric. Now, this is what most of us think of when we think of sex. I mean, it, it, it's fun. I enjoy it. I want this elated feeling. I want this joy feeling. I want to know that this is a good thing and it's a, it's a powerful thing. And a part of what we know, those of us who have a, a good sex life with our partner and our spouses, is that, man, it makes life bigger than it is. It actually makes me feel good not only about myself but about you. It makes me feel strong and bold and healthy and encouraging and, and that I need to find a way to understand how to live this lifelong commitment out with you. It is bigger than ourselves, and that's a part of this good gift. A part of this good gift is to claim that in my monogamous relationship with you, I can have life that is full and abundant, and it is related to that gift. 
I want to encourage you today or maybe tomorrow to go read a, a book that most of us don't ever read. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a pretty short book. It only has eight chapters. It's called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on your Bible. Um, but it's a powerful treatise on the beauty and wonder of our mates and of the sex life that we have. It's pretty risque. Go read it. It's fun. Makes your heart pound just a little bit. And it's right there in the Bible, right? Now, not all those texts are there, but um, one that I wanted to offer with you is, is from the book of Proverbs about how sex is euphoric and how it can sort of create this uh, beyond our self sense, right? The writer says it this way, let your fountain be blessed. I'll let you picture what that is. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. May her breast satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. Wow. Now, in a patriarchal society, he's going to write about his wife. Women can write about their husband or otherwise, however that needs to go. But you get the picture, right? They're expressing the elation and the euphoria and the joy of what this lasting relationship can offer. Even in the Bible, it's going to help us understand how wonderful and beautiful this kind of relationship can be. Ultimately, here's what I want to say. Ultimately, sexual intimacy is about agape love. Now, agape is a strange Greek word from the Bible. It means self-sacrificial. It means self-giving. If indeed we want a fulfilling sex life in our marriage life, we want to give life away. We want to share ourselves with the other. We want to commit ourselves fully to the one that we've committed to, right? And that's how we want to do this. We want to do it in such a way that we offer life to the other. And guess what? If we're both doing that, then we're being satisfied together, right? We're, we're claiming that powerful gift. Remember what Paul said in verse 4 of the text today. He said, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. You see, the good gift of sex is God's way to help us become bigger and better than we already are, to help us know that we need another human in our lives that we need the gift of the other for our satisfaction. And sex is a powerful way to do that. Here's what I believe about um, the Christian gift of sexual intimacy. When we follow Christ and we live into this sexual intimacy, here's a few things that we do. We do not worship sex, but we worship God, the one who gave us the gift. And that contextualizes everything. What we also recognize is that when we have intimacy with another person, our spouse, then we first start it with an intimate relationship with Jesus. He sets the, 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 the table, if you will. He sets the foundation of what this agape love looks like. And we can only genuinely live into that sexual intimacy when we know the love of Christ and how it is we can live it out. The way this also lives itself out is that uh, sex is not governed by law, but rather by what honors and pleases God. And of course, that's why Jesus came, right? He came to fulfill the law, to help make it the way it ought to be. 
And indeed, the basis of that foundation is this, that if indeed our Christian sexual intimacy is based in a relationship with Jesus, then it is never disconnected from the great commandments. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor and love that neighbor as yourself. And when we do, those three intertwine to become an intimate relationship that is beyond compare beyond even our imagination. What a powerful gift God has given us in sex. I wonder if sometimes we haven't either negated that beauty or abused that gift or somehow gone astray with what God intended for us in these lifelong committed relationships. I pray that you'll discover both the creativity and the unity and the euphoria of sex within your confines of marriage, that it may indeed bless you, encourage you, and strengthen you in a relationship with God in Jesus. May that be so. For those of us who choose marriage, may it be the gift that God offers us. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you. Thank you for your love found in Jesus Christ, that amazing agape love that pours out self for the fulfillment of the other. Help us, Lord, even in our own sex lives to claim that gift that we may genuinely know of the creative spirit, the unifying elements, and the powerful gift of the euphoria that you intended for us. Help us, Lord, to practice that well, that we may honor you and bless others. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.